You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 37. We'll just read Genesis 37 in its entirety. Genesis 37, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his fathers kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers, and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. 
and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the, blood, the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognize our utter dependence upon you, O Father, for teaching and instruction, for understanding. We ask, O Father, that you would be pleased to bless us. You would speak to our hearts. Some of us are more familiar with this text than others. Father, meet each of us where we are. And, O Father, we know that, Lord, you will teach us and instruct us. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to this word and this word in turn to our hearts. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of housekeeping before we begin. Verse 1, uh, we need to always be mindful that the versification of the Bible is not inspired. Uh, in fact, really, I'm, I'm kind of amazed uh, that the versification is as good as it is. You know, the chapter divisions and the verses and what have you. Uh, but it's not inspired. And sometimes we'll come to places where we think arguably verse 1 of chapter 37 I think really belongs with the last chapter instead of this chapter. I'll show you why. If you look there in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And if you were with us last week in the study of Genesis 36, then you'll recall in verse 6 through 8, if you look there, there we're told that Esau, what does he do? He, he actually leaves the land of Canaan, right? If we read these verses, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. The idea is he's leaving the, he's leaving the land of promise. Now, what is significant about leaving the land of promise the significant thing about leaving the land of the promise is he's leading, he's leaving the Holy Land. He's leaving that which typifies or points to or foreshadows the new heavens and the new earth. And he's leaving this for what? He's leaving it for the world, isn't he? You can see where this, uh, in contrast to Esau, Jacob actually lived in the land of his father's sojourning. And I think literally speaking, these belong together. So uh, verse 2 is very significant, and we've seen this many times. Look at verse 2 of chapter 37. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, what is significant about that? You remember I said a little bit about this last week. What's significant about that is the Holy Spirit has given us an outline in the book of Genesis. The Holy Spirit has divided the book for us, and the division markers are this phrase, these are the generations. There are actually 10 of them. 
The first one starts in Genesis 2.4. These are the generations, or some of your translations will read, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Then in Genesis 5, we have the generations of Adam. Genesis 6, we have the generations of Noah. Then after the flood, we have the generations of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which is in Genesis 10, which is like the table of nations, if you will. Then in Genesis 11, we have the generations of Shem and the generations of Terah. Then in Genesis 25, we have the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac. Last week, we saw the generations of Esau. And this is the final time in the book where we'll see these are the generations of Jacob. So what the Holy Spirit is telling us here is a new section has begun. A new section has begun. But this section builds upon everything that's come before it. And I was thinking, I was always studying this all week. I'm thinking, boy, there's a lot of detail here. To, to work this passage out, there's a lot of detail here. And every Lord's Day is a mixed company. Some of us have been around for this whole thing. Some of us are just visiting. Some of us kind of jumped in halfway through. If you feel this morning like someone has just taken a boatload or a truckload of information and dumped it on you, if you start to feel that way in this message, it's because somebody is dumping a bunch of stuff on you. Um, you, you're, you should feel, that's exactly how you should feel. Um, some people begin swimming in this and think, well, what am I supposed to do? Here's what you do. The Lord will make it very clear. Open your, allow, your, allow the Lord to teach you. Say, Lord, teach me. Set aside your own abilities. Set aside all that stuff. Say, Lord, teach me. I want to learn this morning. I want to learn something. I want to be changed by this. And there's many details you're going to forget. None of us remember them all. But the Lord is very faithful. He'll show you what you to have. And what, and what you get today, you use next time and you build on it. You build on it. I tell people all the time. People say, I come and I don't understand any of this. Well, just keep hanging around. That was some of you a couple of years ago, wasn't it? And now look where you are. You, you're getting this figured out. So there's going to be a lot of information. There has to be. I don't see any way around it. But here we have the generations of Jacob. Now, what's interesting is, We've already been studying Jacob for how many months? And we're saying now we're getting the generations of Jacob. And those who have read the read Genesis and are familiar with Genesis say, well, you know, it's kind of funny that this would be the generations of Jacob because really the, the book is really going to start to focus on Joseph, isn't it? It's going to be a lot about Joseph. And those who, I think a lot of you agree if you're familiar with Genesis, probably your favorite parts begin in chapter 37 all the way through 50, isn't it? I mean, in terms of literature, it is great stuff, isn't it? I mean, the storyline is incredible. Um, Joseph, being 17 years old, verse 2, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Boy, there is so much going on there, isn't there? There's so much going on there. What, I mean, I th where do we start? I think the place to start first is that old favoritism is rearing its ugly head again, isn't it? And that reminds us of Jacob and Esau and their upbringing, right? What was it like in Jacob's house growing up? Well, dad, he loves Esau. I realize he loves Esau more than he loves me. I accept that. But mama, man, she loves me more than Esau, so... I guess it's a trade-off, and Esau could say the same thing, I suppose. And the kids that grow up in this favoritism, and look what's happening here. The favoritism is working its way into another generation, isn't it? Here, Jacob, 
loves Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, why? We're told because he was a son of his old age. Now, if you're familiar with the background, you can like maybe have some sympathies here. You know, Jacob did a really nasty thing to his brother and to his father, and that was part of the reason why he had to get out of Dodge. But his father also told him to go up to his uncle Laban and find a wife. So he goes up to his uncle Laban, and there he meets Rachel, who is Laban's daughter. And, you know, if this is disputed, some say it's love at first sight. Others say, no, it's not love at first sight. Uh, I kind of think it was love at first sight. But one thing I can say for sure, and I said this when we were studying it, it's definitely love at first month. Because by the end of the month, he has found the woman that he wants to spend the rest of his life with. And that's it. He is in love with Rachel. And he agrees to work seven years for her hand, right? And what happens when those seven years finally elapse and there's a wedding? What happens the next day? Jacob wakes up and it's not Rachel who's in his tent. It's Rachel's sister, Leah. And you think to yourself, how could that possibly happen? Well, the women would have been veiled for the whole time, probably separated for a lot of the ceremony. And then it'd be dark. Around here, we don't realize how dark it can be at night because there's lights everywhere. A few years ago, Tammy and I were in this little place called Doug Spur, Virginia. And like, we didn't really know where we were because we used GPS to get there. And it's like, turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right. Finally, figure where are we at? Surely we'll see a sign that has something we recognize. We didn't, we couldn't figure out where we were. Where are we? We are way out in the hills, out in the woods. There was hardly anything out there. And the first night, it was pretty nice. Stars, actually stars were wonderful. And moon was out and you could see some things. But then the weather got really bad. The second night, it was, it was cloudy. There was no moon in sight, no stars. And I'm going to tell you, it was dark. And this is the way it would have been in this culture. It would have gotten dark, very dark. Now imagine Jacob. Okay, the next day, he discovers this, not Rachel. So what does he do? He agrees to work another seven years for Rachel's hand. And now he's married to Leah and Rachel. Something that was practiced in this age, something that God deplores. It was legal in this, in, this, in this era. But just because something's legal doesn't mean it's moral, right? There's lots of things that are legal that are immoral. Lots of things that are legal that are deplorable in God's sight. So here, Jacob finds himself married not only to Rachel, but to Leah. Leah begins to have children. She has, what, Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, you know, four kids, and Rachel has had none at this point. Rachel begins to get envious and jealous. So she takes something that's commonly practiced in the day. She has a servant named Bilpah. So she says, okay, uh, Jacob, take Bilpah, marry Bilpah, and then you can have children through Bilpah, which is what Jacob does. So then we have what? Um, Dan and Naphtali through Bilpah. Well, then this contest between the sisters continue to go on, this, this envy and this jealousy and and Leah's not having any more children, so what does she do? She gives Zilpah to Jacob. And Zilpah has Gad and Asher. And meanwhile, Rachel hasn't had anyone. She's not had any children yet. Until finally, she conceives and gives birth to Joseph. Now, Rachel is the woman that Jacob loves. There's no question about that. And here is the firstborn to Rachel, Joseph. So I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying I think we can find some sympathy to it as we get down into the narrative on Jacob's side. 
But think about the family dynamics here for a moment. I think this is why Bilhah and Zilpah are mentioned here in this favoritism. You know, a lot, oftentimes when, we, when you hear these, these uh, chapters preached, you don't hear much about the servants. But you know, the servants were people. They were women who desired to be loved, to raise a family. And we kind of forget about that. You know, Bilhah is a servant girl, Rachel's servant girl. Now she finds herself married. Who is her husband? Her, well, her husband is a man who's married to three other women. How would she feel? Am I like a second-rate wife? Well, probably not, because second-rate wife would probably be Leah. Leah is Rachel's sister. It's probably sisters first. Rachel, Leah, me. And how about the kids? If mom's thinking this way, you're going to be long before the kids are thinking this way, right? Because that gets communicated, doesn't it? What if you're Zilpah? Well, I'm a servant of Leah, who's a second to, where do I fit? And how about if you're the children? You see the dynamic here? One sin by a grandfather creates this horrible dysfunction, doesn't it? Horrible, horrible dysfunction. And here's Joseph. Joseph's out in the field with these guys, and he's got his fancy coat on. What's his fancy coat remind everybody of? It might as well have these big words and say, I am daddy's favorite. Whether he realized it or not, I'm daddy's favorite. He's out in the field and he brings back a bad report to his father. Now, when you're reading this text, I think you have to make kind of a decision. I think many of us make kind of a mental decision when we're reading this text. And, and I think the decision comes between two things. We say, wait a second, is, is Joseph being a faithful son and reporting what's going on out in the field or is he being a, is he being a snooty tattletale? And if you find yourself really divided over that, don't feel bad. A lot of ink has been spilt throughout the history of interpreting these verses on that very subject. And there are positions on extremes and everything in between. Is he a snooty little spoiled tattletale? Or is he a faithful son? But before we move on from there, let, let, let's recognize for a moment that that really is the tension, isn't it? Let, let, let me bring it into contemporary terms because this will touch many of you. When you're at the workplace, because that's where Joseph is, is at the workplace, and obviously he sees something going on at the workplace that shouldn't go on, something that his father should know about. Some of us have been there where we're at the workplace. We see something going on that the boss should know about or the supervisor should know about, or the owner of the company should know about, and here we are. What do we do? Some of you have called me with that. I had a man that's not part of our congregation. He's a pastor, actually. He called me not very long ago. He said to me, here's a situation I have. What do I do? It was this situation. It was exactly this situation. And you say on one hand, well, the boss needs to know about this. Somebody in supervision needs to know about this. But on the other hand, I don't want to be a tattletale. And there's the tension, isn't it? What does Jacob, or I'm sorry, what does Joseph do? He brings the report to his father. And we're told in verse 4 that when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Verses 5 and onward and 9 and onward are going to add some more fuel to this. Look at verse 5. 
Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Why? Look at the dream. He said to them, verse 6, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we're binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Oh, man. Do the brothers understand this dream? Do they interpret it? Oh, yeah. No problem with the interpretation. Look what they say. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And we're told that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And to add another another log on the fire, verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? The 11 stars would be the brothers who are the sun and the moon, mother and father. Shall the whole household bow down to you? Joseph, what is wrong with you? Now, in this economy, how does God typically speak to his people? How has he been typically speaking to his people? It's been through these visions and these dreams. It's not like they could say, okay, everybody, we're going to get together for a Bible study. I want you to turn to Genesis 37. And here are these dreams. There is no Genesis 37. God is communicating to them through these dreams. So when Joseph comes and says, I have had a dream and I'm going to tell it to you, what is he doing? He is, it, I, I think we can read between the lines here, what is Joseph saying? He's saying, I've got a word from God here. We're all binding sheaves, you know, and my sheaf stands up and all yours bow down. What? You'd want to chase him out of the field, wouldn't you? He goes, well, I've had another dream. Now, this one's even more significant, and I think it even points more Godward because it's, because it's, it's speaking of the heavens, isn't it? The lower heavens. Eleven stars and the sun and the moon are bowing down to me. We're told that in verse 11 that his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Kind of reminds you of Mary, doesn't it, in the New Testament? Ponders these things in his heart. Now, the scene changes in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem. And we think, Shechem of all places. Some of us who were around a few, few, few weeks ago, you remember Shechem's the place where Simeon and Levi went in and put everyone to death by the sword because the prince of Shechem had, had raped their sister Dinah. You remember that story. And here they are back in Shechem, and they're pasturing their flock. And what does, what does Jacob say? He says to Joseph, come on, I want to send you out to them to see how they're doing. Uh, go on out and see how, how they're doing. Now, we have, to, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is Jacob aware of the family dynamics here? I mean, is he, he's, does he realize that he's putting Joseph into such danger? I think if we were the neighbors, I think we would have said, you know what, um, Jacob, have you lost your mind? They're like about 50 miles away out in the middle of nowhere, nothing. And you're going to send Joseph out there by himself? But that's the funny thing about family dysfunction, isn't it? Oftentimes we can't see it, but our next door neighbor sees it everywhere. And of course, what our next door neighbor might not be realizing is they don't see theirs but we see theirs. 
Oftentimes it's concealed to us, isn't it, when we're in the midst of it? Joseph, he's faithful. He's faithful to his father. When we're asking ourselves, is he a tattletale? Is he faithful? We have to answer he's faithful to his father. And Joseph, as we study Joseph, as we continue to study Joseph, we're going to see he is an extraordinarily faithful man, isn't he? Uh, as the Lord begins to work on him. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because I, I, I want to take each, each thing in its place. But he's faithful to his father. He says, here I am. He has to be aware of some of the danger. I mean, a little bit. Has to be uncomfortable for him. But I'm willing to go. I'll go. Let's go. So he, he goes off. And in verse 15, 16, 17, he meets a really mysterious man. The more you read this, the more you study this, the more mysterious this man actually becomes. Notice that it says, a man found him wandering in the fields. That is, this man found Joseph wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? He says, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Now, this is so mysterious. Who is this man? Some in church history have said he's an angel dispatched by God. I don't know that. I don't want to create angelic visitations where there are no angelic visitations. But I will say this. There is something very curious about this man who doesn't even ask, well, who are your brothers? And he doesn't say, well, you know, uh, there was some folks here. I don't know. There was, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 or so guys here. They were pastoring a flock and I heard somebody mumble they were headed to Dothan. Maybe that's the folks you're looking for. He doesn't say that. He's quite confident that he knows the group. It could be explained in other ways, but it does seem curious. Now, what we can say for sure, and this is a major theme. I'm not going to develop much of it now, but it's a major theme as we go from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, and that's God's providential hand, isn't it? It's seen more clearly in this storyline, I think, than it's seen in almost anywhere else in Scripture. And there we get a taste of it. Joseph is being guided to exactly where God wants him. And in verse 18, the brothers see Joseph coming from afar. Do you see that? They see him from afar. Now, I ask you this question. How do you suppose they know it's him? It's the coat. And if you were one of the brothers and you're sweating out there in the sun and everything with the, with the, with the sheep and you've been out there, who knows what he's been doing? He's been at home. He's in the air conditioning. And there you see him. What, what, what are you going to think to yourself? You know what? I'd like to take that robe off of him and strangle him with it. Right? We have to be careful with that thought. Because it's the genesis if it is given fuel and it's given nutrition, it can grow into something that's quite ugly, can it? Notice what they say. They saw him from afar, verse 18. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, now notice, here comes the dreamer. Of all of the things that they could say, they don't say, here comes the the snotty-nosed brat, or here, here, doesn't, here comes daddy's favorite. They say, here comes the dreamer. Now, we know that these dreams are actually from the Lord. We know that. The reader doesn't necessarily know that yet, but if we continue on, we know that that is coming from the Lord. It's, there's something more going on than their animosity towards Joseph is what I'm pointing to. 
Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. They resent those dreams. They resent that. Hold on to that thought because it's going to play out uh, as we go along. Now, in verse 21, we're shocked. Why are we shocked? Because only one brother, only one brother sticks up for Joseph. Now, we shouldn't be shocked by that. But what we're shocked by as to, is as to which brother it is. Who is it? It's Reuben. Now, why are we shocked that Reuben is sticking up for Joseph? Because Reuben, you'll recall, just had an affair with his father's wife. Right? Now, is this a mess or what? You see the dysfunction that's going on in this family? But Reuben is indeed the one. He's, he, he, first thing he does, he says, listen, don't shed no blood. Cast him into this pit. And he has intentions of rescuing him. What he has intentions of doing is throwing him in the pit until they lose interest in him and move on. Maybe they'll just leave him in the pit for dead and they'll move on. Then Reuben's going to backtrack, pull him out of the pit and send him back to his father. That's the plan. That's the plan. So Reuben disappears. In the meantime, verse 25, the brothers sit down to eat. Now see how cold envy can make you? See how cold envy can make you? See how cold jealousy can make you? Sinful jealousy. And jealousy and envy are two different things. I hope you all know and understand that. Do you know and understand that? Jealousy, envy, they're two different things. They're used as synonyms all the time, but they're two different things. Jealousy is an emotion that we experience when we see someone else getting attention that we think we should have. And actually, jealousy can be godly. God reveals himself as jealous. And we struggle with that because we read it because a lot of times we think of jealousy in the sinful way. It can be sinful as well. But God is jealous over his children whenever we seek and, and, and we, 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 we seek something in creation and we love it more than we love God. God gets jealous of that. God is jealous. But envy, envy is an emotion. Jonathan Edwards has a great definition of envy. He says, envy is a spirit of dissatisfaction or opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others. Let me read that again slower. Envy is a spirit of dissatisfaction or opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others. Envy is a different thing. Envy says, I don't want you to have this. If I can't have it, nobody can. Envy says, I don't want you moving up the ladder. Envy certainly doesn't want you catching up to them. And the last thing that they would want is for you to surpass them, someone who is gripped in the grip of envy. And envy is dangerous. It is so dangerous that it can render these men so cold that they can throw Joseph in the pit with every intention of either leaving him there to starve or uh, slaughtering him with their swords. And here, look, in verse 25, they sit down to eat. They're eating like it's no big deal. And looking up, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites. And then Judah, Judah has this, you know, he has this bright idea. You know, he's seeing dollar signs. He says in verse 26, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And of course, they agree and they sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, don't they? Now, Reuben comes back, discovers the pit is empty, and he begins to mourn. Probably his initial thought is they've killed him. Uh, but then in verse 31, they conspire. They take Joseph's robe. They slaughter it. A goat, they dip the robe in the blood, 
and they send the rope to their father, and they leave their father to discern what has happened. Notice the deception here. They give their their father the robe, and they say, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. This doesn't sound like family, does it? It sounds like the police have showed up and said, hey, could you identify this, how cold it is and how formal it is? Of course, Jacob tears his garments and mourns for many days, and, and then they take place in comforting him. They deceive him. Now, important point here. Jacob is here being deceived by his children. And what does that remind you of? It reminds you of Jacob standing in front of his blind father, posing as Esau, deceiving his father. We're told in verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sell Joseph to Potiphar, who is an officer of Pharaoh down in Egypt. This is a tough text. Um, it, it leads us to two painful realities. Neither of one are very comfortable. One is that our sins can very often return upon us through our children. And we see this happening all over the place, don't we? Jacob, the deceiver, deceiving his father, now being deceived. And the jealousy between Leah and Rachel, that jealousy, and you see that jealousy finding itself into the, into the children. Um, a second... The second point is our vices can very often be carried into the hearts of our children. This one is very painful. And some of you have even asked prayer about this very thing, this very subject, because you realize, you realize that we all realize that we're not perfect. And we all realize that we have these certain vices, and and it's horrifying to all of us to think that we are going to communicate some of these vices to our children, isn't it? You know, this parenting stuff is not easy, is it? You think to yourself that, okay, when they're, when they're 25, it's going to get easier. And I, well, I got to tell you, I mean, I don't, I, uh, not necessarily. This parenting stuff is not easy. It's the most difficult thing that we'll ever do. The most difficult assignment that we'll ever get is parenting. And we do, uh, we, we do have to be very, very careful. And you know, you notice I never defined dysfunction. How come? Well, let me stop. Being I brought it up, does anybody need a definition of dysfunction? I mean, raise your hand and I'll define it. Does anybody, everyone knows what dysfunction is? Why do you know what it is? It's because you grew up in it, right? Every family has it. And oftentimes, the, 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 the dysfunction that we grow up in sometimes can actually be taken back, maybe in some cases, to one single sin that somebody has committed, maybe even, maybe even two generations ago. Huh. And what about, what about, like, carrying our vices into the hearts of our children? I mean, here we have a clear, we have a clear example where jealousy is communicated, a clear example where uh, selfish ambition and deceit and favoritism are all are all communicated, but some of us maybe we maybe we have a trouble with control, 
Or maybe we have a trouble with covetousness or lukewarmness or hypocrisy. We could go down the list, right? You know, yesterday I was thinking about what, what points, what homiletic, how do I want to steer this homiletically? And, it, you know, I, I, I wrote these two points on my tablet here. And I was thinking to myself, you know, of all of the vices that we could, that we could communicate to our, our children, what is the worst? What is the worst? And I keep coming up with unbelief. I can't think of one that's worse than that. And here's the scary part. Is we could be a parent who spends time with our children, cares for our children, watches over our children, sees that our children have everything that they need, and yet not impart to them the need for Jesus. So the the scary thing is, is that the devil can do a lot of work by raising up good parents, good being on a secular scale. Give them everything they want. Give them all this stuff. Make them, they're going to love you. Oh, absolutely, they're going to love you. Give them all the stuff they need. Give them all this. Give them all that. Spend time with them. Do all of the things that all of the, 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 the current psychologists are telling us to do. Do all of this stuff. Do all this stuff right. But no Jesus. No Jesus. No salvation. Church never is any part of family life. I think that's the worst. One of the things I'm so inspired by our young parents here is how the Lord is imparting into you fathers especially that desire to open up your Bibles and read your Bibles with your children. Oh, you have no idea. When you tell me that you do that, you have no idea how much I praise God for that. We cannot change the hearts of our children any more than we can change our own hearts. But I can tell you that the most influential person in your family is the father. And whether they seem interested in it or not, whether they love it or not, continue to do it. Because you're filling their hearts with all of these things that the Holy Spirit can use and He will use to see that these children don't grow up to be faithless. That's the worst thing that can happen to us, isn't it? To grow up and be faithless. But what do we say about all kinds of other dysfunction? As I say this, many of you, I'm looking at many of you and I realize that you come from really dysfunctional situations. What do we say to that? You don't come from the situation where Father's giving you all that you want and doing all this nurture and doing all that nature. What do we say to all of that? What do we say to all of that? What do we say to all of that is you have a Father in heaven. That's what we say to that. You have a Father in heaven who has sent a Savior I don't know if you've noticed, but the New Testament doesn't do this, but, but 
oftentimes biblical interpreters all down through the ages have done this. There's a parallel. Just listen for a moment. Joseph is loved by his father. Joseph is righteous. He really is. He's got his faults, but he's righteous. Joseph is sent to his brothers. Joseph faces and suffers temptation and persecution. Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Joseph ends up being Lord over his brothers. What's that sound like? Jesus is loved by his father. Jesus is sent to his brothers. Jesus is perfectly righteous. He's not wearing a fancy robe, (laughs) but he's perfectly righteous. He faces temptation, suffers persecution. He is sold for 30 pieces of silver, right? He's crucified. Why? You want to know one of the things he's crucified for? That family dysfunction. That family dysfunction. On the third day, he rises. Forty days, he sends to the Father. And there he is in session as Lord over all creation, isn't he? What do we do about our our dysfunction? We just follow him. We follow him. We surrender our lives to him. We surrender our hearts to him. We follow him. And in Christ, we're made new. And in Christ, our families can be made new. Oftentimes, that's how God works. And I'll close with this. Oftentimes, this is how God works. When you go into churches, I had a lot of pulpit supply work before coming here. And when you do, when you go into churches, oftentimes you, you, you'll run into a church, you get them, you introduce yourself to, you'll find that, okay, there's a church of 75 people or 100 people or 200 people, and you'll find there's only maybe a dozen families in that whole bunch. Or there might only be five families. Why is that? Because God very typically works in the family unit. Spurgeon used to put it this way. Oftentimes, I'll paraphrase him because I can't remember everything word for word, but he would say this. He would say, oftentimes, the Lord saves a person and then uses that person as a decoy to drive the others in his family into his gospel net. Does that sound like Spurgeon? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Fathers, read those Bibles to your children. Pray with your children. Bring your children to church. You're doing all that you can at that point. Amen. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a, what a word from your, from you've given us in Genesis 37, oh Lord. What a sobering word. Father, we can be so trivial about our sins, so trivial and loose and careless with our vices, and we forget that sometimes it is one sin that can create generations of family dysfunction. Oh, Father who is sufficient for these things. We recognize that we are not, but, O Father, we recognize that we are not alone. O Father, you've called us to yourselves. You've given us a great Savior. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And, Father, we see that you have such a desire and such a care for your people. And, Father, we are comforted this morning as we look and we see what a mess Jacob's family is. What what an awful mess. Oh, Lord, we're comforted by the fact that if you can deal with this mess, 
you can deal with ours. No, Lord, we recognize that our families are a mess because we're a mess. But, oh, Father, you've given us a Savior to clean us up. And that's what he does on the cross, taking our sins away from us, giving us his righteousness. Oh, Father, you're most worthy to be praised. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.